Take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Revelation chapter 22. And I'd like you to find this scripture rather quickly for our scripture reading tonight because I want to read scripture before I get into the introductory remarks of the sermon. And while you're looking for that text, I, I, kind of just, I was going to do something different for Lord's Supper tonight. And I found that as I was going back over this message that I really thought it's, very, it's a very fitting subject and scripture for our observance tonight and I think it'll help put us in a perfect mood here to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So if you'll look at Revelation chapter 22 beginning at verse number 12, Jesus said, and behold I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city for without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie I Jesus have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches I am the root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star and the spirit and the bride say come and let him that heareth say come And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Now this evening we're looking once again at this great text in verses 12 through 17 that contains the final invitation that we have in Scripture. Every morning when I awake, I think about God's goodness. I'm amazed that that there are billions of people on this planet, there are thousands of people that live in Santa Rosa and every morning when I when I open my eyes I realize that the sovereign Lord rules over me and I'm just awed and humbled about this that God should care for me and I can promise you in all honesty that every morning when I wake up and I'm doing my devotions at the kitchen table that I bow my head in prayer and I and I thank God that he remembers me and I and I confess that I have failed God miserably And I'm completely undeserving of God's favor. But as always, I acknowledge this, that despite all the failures that I have in my life, God has never failed me. He never stops blessing me. He never stops caring about me. I'm sure of God's presence. And that, folks, is a tremendous comfort to me, to know that God is with me. You may not understand this, but preachers don't wake up every single morning and charge the day and just dig into the word of God and look for things that uh, we can bring new morsels of truth to you in the next sermon some days very simply are slow starters they're slow starters it's hard to get going it's hard to get in the frame of mind that you need to be in to study the word of God and and just to have God speak to you through it But I I learned this, that as I begin those devotions and work my way through the day and I'm reading God's word and starting to work on the messages that God begins to speak to me. And there's this excitement. I'm not talking about an audible voice and I think you understand that. But God begins to speak to my heart and I I start to get this vigor and this excitement for, for looking into the word of God and seeing what God has to say. And God does that for every child of his that's willing to open up his heart to read the word and receive what God would have him to know. And so when I come to this text, I'm just amazed once again that God should open up his arms and invite sinners to come to him. 
I mean, as wicked as the world is, and, and it's, as God shows John how wicked that the world would become in future days, I don't understand how that God does not end the Bible. The last words that he says in Scripture, in total exasperation, because he knows how this will be received. He knows that, that, uh, there, that his, his people will, will turn against him. He, he, I can't understand why God is not completely frustrated when he knows the reaction of millions of people to what we read in the Bible, that for very few people that will receive Christ as Savior, there are ten times, a hundred times to one, a thousand times to one that will still defiantly shake their fist in the, in the face of God and say, I will not believe in you. And I wonder, how does God have any patience towards that? And it's, it, it's really a remarkable mystery that we come down to the end of the word here and we find God still holding out his hands, inviting people to come to him. And that's the customary attitude of the Bible record concerning God. I mean, how many times do you read in Scripture about all the terrible things that Israel did, all the crimes that they committed against God? And how many times do you read of them turning to idols and turning their backs on God and serving these heathen, nasty idols? And much of that was just lewd, ungodly acts that, that I can't even mention from the pulpit. And this was really, and I mentioned to you this before, but it was really an eye-opener to me when Gary and I went to Israel and we spent a lot of time among the ruins of ancient Canaanite cities and places that you find in the Bible. And it was really an eye-opener when we looked at those ruins of these cities and see how their worship was centered in just egregious sexual perversions, things that you don't even want to think about. And I, and I hope that you wouldn't even want to wonder about some of the things that took place in that, in that kind of worship. And yet, the chosen nation of God, God's people, would prostitute themselves with all of these heathen gods. And when they did, Jehovah God was always ready to take them back. God always said, God always opened up his arms and invited them. He said, if you will repent and if you will come back to me, that I will forgive you. And it's against that backdrop of immorality that the prophet Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 55 verse 1. And I mentioned it last week, I read it last week as one of the invitations of the Old Testament where Isaiah says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And it's in that very same immorality that God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah and he told them and he asked him to plead with the people to return to him. And when the people heard Jeremiah preach, they wagged their heads at him and they said, we will not worship God. We'll continue to worship these false gods. And they even took Jeremiah and they threw him in a dungeon and he sunk down into the mud or threw him in a pit and he sunk down into the mud up to his armpits. And there were small revivals in Israel at times. After the Babylonian captivity, uh, there was a, a, a group of Israelites that came back from that captivity and they went to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple and they repaired the city walls of Jerusalem. But there were many more of God's people that decided they didn't want to return from Babylon, that they were accustomed to that lifestyle and so they had no interest in worshiping Jehovah God. But in spite of that, they were God's people. And God preserved a number of them. 
And Jesus came hundreds of years later and the succeeding generations after that were so far away from God that there was scarcely a person who even knew what true salvation was any longer. Only a few were still devoted to the truth and were still holding on to those sacred promises of God. And remember how that Jesus spoke of their stubbornness and he spoke of their unbelief and he reminded them that they're the ones, their, their fathers were the ones that killed the prophets and warned them that they should come back to God. And he knew that they were going to do the very same to him. They were going to kill him. And he was God in the flesh. And yet we still find Jesus opening up his arms and inviting sinners to come to him, telling people, if you will just believe, if you will just trust me, if you'll just repent of your sins, all of that will be forgiven. Well, the last 2,000 years hasn't changed very much. The gospel is still preached. People still reject it with impunity. And we look at history and we look at the present and then we look at the future that we can read about in Revelation and it seems utterly impossible that in the end God still opens up his arms and invites sinners to come to him. Now, we would think that this is a subject that's long since been, been buried in the distant past and that God is not interested in calling anyone any longer. But God is not that way. It's his nature to be compassionate. It's his nature to forgive us. It's his nature to invite sinners to come to him. And I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. He doesn't invite sinners to come to him as they are and to stay as they are. God has no interest in the tolerance that's being preached today. I mean, it's not true that God makes no judgments on people. It's not true that God does not judge lifestyles or attitudes or daily habits or that God doesn't judge the morality of people. He still does. God saves people and he changes them. And they'll conform to him or there'll be none of his. He never asks anybody to clean themselves up before they come, but he knows for sure that when they do come, they're not going to go away without a spiritual bath that washes them clean from their sins. And so God changes them and gives them that desire to live by his commandments. So we turn our attention to this text in which there's another gospel invitation that's given. And the heart of the compassionate God is still seen in this scripture. He thunders throughout all of Revelation with all the fury that we read of all the things that take place there. And that's good for us to read and it's good for us to understand what God says will happen because that very thing is what makes the invitation that God gives so sweet to us. We don't have to be the victims in Revelation. We can be the victors here. So he begins with this in verse 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And this is, first of all, the reward of his coming. Now, the primary meaning of this scripture is that Christ comes back with a reward for those who have given faithful service to him. And this is really just another one of those remarkable aspects of the salvation that we have in Christ. Now, in my morning devotions, I'm happy enough that God would give me my salvation. And if that's all that he ever gave me, gave me, I would have nothing at all to complain about. I'm happy with that. God has given me salvation. But what he does and what he promises is to give us so much more than that. He blesses us without measure. He gives us far more than we deserve. See, God is always dealing with superlatives. 
I don't know how God can add to our happiness in heaven, but he tells us that if we will serve him faithfully in this life, he will make heaven even a happier place for us. And that's just beyond our comprehension. And it's important that we don't confuse what I've just said about rewards and working for the Lord as a way to earn our salvation. Because we never can do that. The Bible's not teaching that. But there are rewards that God gives for faithful service to him that will enhance our enjoyment of heaven. And so the reward for God's people, that's the primary subject that we have in, in, in this verse, in verse number 12. But in our discussion last week, I also pointed out to you that we can make an application to those who are lost because Christ also comes with a reward for them. But the reward that he has for them is not a good reward. It's a judgment for their sins. It's the just deserts of the rejection of Christ. And their reward is the eternal punishment in hell for their sins. And there's not anyone that should ever complain about that and say, well, God, you didn't give me enough warning about this. I'm not, I wasn't aware of this. No one should say, well, God, I just don't know enough about this because at the very beginning of creation, God showed himself. He gave proof of his existence. The scripture says the heavens declare the glory of God. And yet there are still people that that won't humble themselves under the hands of the almighty God and they have no excuse whatsoever for not doing so. And God even did more than that. He did more than just to reveal himself in the creation, but God also sent his only son. God sent Jesus into the world in human flesh, and he came to die for our sins, and he came with a glorious invitation. So there's no one who has a valid excuse when they understand that Christ comes with reward. But we need to move on from that because we have a lot more in this text to consider and My long introduction is taken away from some of the time that we have to do that. But I want to concentrate on on this part tonight, and that is the reminder of his consuming presence. The reminder of his consuming presence. Verse 13 says, I am Alpha and Omega. Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And that's the fourth time in the Revelation that we have a reminder of the omnipotence of Jesus Christ. Now, in the opening chapter, the momentous presence of Jesus was felt there. And even before John had a chance to see what was going on or chance to realize what was happening, John knew that this was going to be something different than he'd ever seen before. Something new is about to happen. And if you'll just turn back to that first chapter of Revelation, uh, we're going to look here at these two instances that are found in this chapter where this description is given of Jesus. The same one whether you have in chapter 22. Revelation 1 verse 8, Jesus speaks to John and he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Now there is a statement that's intended to show that Christ is the being and the existence of God himself. Alpha and Omega. Now those as you know, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Those letters represent the beginning and the ending and everything that's in between. And the Bible teaches us that Christ is before all things and by him all things consist. The Apostle Paul said that in the book of Colossians. It's Jesus who is the agent by which everything that was made was made. He's not an angel, he's not a man, but he is the creator God. He's the first cause 
who is without a cause because he exists eternally in himself. Now we find the second usage of the term in verse number 11. It says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That's verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. Now there we have an affirmation that Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. He's the God of time. And that's shown by his command for John to write a book. And God says, Jesus says, send it to the churches. And those were real churches. Those were real cities in that time. But the message that he gave was also a message for the future. And this is a message that will reverberate down through time until the events that we read about here are in progress and then the world is brought to an end. And then we turn over to the 21st chapter in the third instance of this title, this description that's given for Jesus. In Revelation 21, verse number 5 and 6, it says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And those verses tell us that Jesus is not just Lord of the creation, and he's not just the Lord of time, but he's also the Lord of the new creation. There's a new heaven and a new earth that's coming, and Jesus will reign supremely and eternally in that new creation. And then we come to our text in chapter 22. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And here he tells us that he comes with reward and that tells us that he is beyond the creator. He's beyond the ruler of time. He's beyond the king of the new heavens and the new earth. But he is also the judge of all. And when you wrap all of that together, you can't concede anything less than he is very God of very God. What we have here are affirmations of his deity. And I don't mean that he's a God among gods. And I don't mean that he's something like what we will become. He's not a lesser God. He is the only God. He is the eternally pre-existent from everlasting to everlasting great I am. The self-existent God. And I hope that you can see that while I'm sitting at my kitchen table, why that I'm overwhelmed by this. And And I hope that you can understand why I speak constantly about God's sovereignty. And why I concern myself that we don't do anything that tarnishes his name. And and anything that brings him down to the level of man. And I do understand that the Bible speaks of Jesus like a familiar friend. I understand that scripture says about him that we can have a purse, close, no intimate relationship with him. I understand that he condescended to come in the frailty of man, that he took on human flesh, and that Jesus walked among us, that Jesus was here and he touched people, and with loving compassion he healed people and all the things that he did. I get all of that. But I have to keep it all in perspective because I can't be flippant about him. I can't, I can't face him like a chummy pal that I can joke with and poke him in the side. I certainly can't make him a Jesus who's interested in, in giving me new cars and boats and vacations like people teach today. 
And I can't come here and tell you to tone down your reverence for Christ and embrace some kind of wild, frantic frenzy that makes you look crazy and makes him have the dignity of a bullfrog. I can't do that. And so I continue to speak about the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ because he is not common like us. And I can't fathom the doctrine of the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons that drag the deity of Jesus Christ through the mud. I mean, I cringe that anybody could ever entertain the thought that such people are Christians. And that doesn't mean that I'm better than them. I don't think that I am. But I'm just so much thankful for this, that God has revealed this to me. I'm grateful that he saved me, that he opened my eyes to the truth, and I'm on the right side of that coming reward and not on the wrong side of it. And then I'm also sickened by the idolatry of Roman Catholicism that elevates Mary to deity and gives a sinful human an office that's equal to or above that of Jesus Christ. Mary herself said that she was a sinner. Now, she was blessed to be chosen by God for sure, but she admitted that she was a sinner that needed salvation. And Mary had far more integrity to admit her sin than a pope that claims that he's infallible. And Mary's confession of sin was a gracious act that was given to her by God himself. Jesus is Alpha and Omega. There's no one that stands in his place. There's no one who has an equal place. There's no pope of any time that could ever say that he stands in God's place. And so four times in the Revelation, we're reminded of this. He is Alpha and Omega. Well, we might ask then, who is this exalted one? Isaiah describes him. Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that was an astounding vision of Jesus Christ. I want you to turn in your Bibles for a moment here, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. And here is where John gives us an explanation of Isaiah's vision. And unless there's, unless there's someone who thinks that, well, the Bible doesn't really say that Jesus is God, that he's the one true living God, well, you need to read these verses here and see what John recorded about this. And I want you to look at, with me at the beginning of verse number 37 in chapter 12. John 12, verse number 37 It says, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things, listen, these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. So Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. That's the Alpha and Omega. This is the Lord sitting upon his throne. And so in the Gospel of John, we have it confirmed that what Isaiah saw in that vision was Jesus Christ. And he was in his temple in heaven and the seraphim were crying out, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, do you see why I have such trouble familiarizing Jesus into a caricature of a bearded, robed, sandaled guy? Some picture that somebody puts on the wall with the long hair and the soft, dovey blue eyes? That's not Jesus to me. Jesus is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the King of all kings. And then we look at him also as the possessor of all divine attributes. Not just the omnipotence that we're speaking of, but Jesus Christ is also the immutable one. Hebrews says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they shall all wax old as doth a garment, and a vesture as a vesture thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. It's Jesus Christ who said in Micah, I am the Lord, I change not. And so the same God that created the world is the same one that will end it. The same one that gave it government is the same one that will rule it. And the same one that gave it justice is the same one who will judge it. Now think about that. There are some people who have the idea that God the Father is a tyrant. And that what God the Father wants to do is to send people to hell. And of course that's an unbiblical picture of God the Father. God the Father is the one who chose people to salvation. But they say this, that that God the Father is the one who casts people into hell. But it's Jesus who comes to him and begs the Father, please don't do it. And then there are others that say, well, God the Father and Jesus Christ are ready for revenge. And what they actually need is a soothing influence over them. And this is how Roman Catholicism induces people to worship and to pray to Mary. They say that she's the calming influence that she's the mother that dissuades her son from exacting his justice upon mankind. Folks, that is just a blasphemous assertion. People think that we have a God that's swayed and that he's talked down and he changes his mind according to our plans. And that kind of weak idea of God has even filtered itself over into the doctrine of salvation. And this is when people say that, well, uh, you're, you're the determiner of your own salvation, that God's for you and the devil is against you and you're the one who decides whether you are going to be a child of God. Not for a minute. It's the immutable God who has a plan. And when God decided that he wanted me, he was going to get me. And he didn't come and ask me about it because if he asked me about it, I would have refused him. Because that's what all people do. That's the way our hearts are. We will refuse him when he comes. And so we thank God for this, that he sent the Holy Spirit and he changed our hearts so that we could believe in him. That's God's determination, not mine. Scripture teaches he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what was in his eternal plan has always been in that eternal plan. And the immutability of God, folks, is the only full guarantee that my salvation is secure. It's the only way that I can know that Revelation twenty-two thirteen is actually true and, it'll be hap- and it will happen because if God changes, if God will change, God can change, then my salvation is as steadfast as jello. And so when he says, I am Alpha and Omega, he lets me know that he is God and he never needs to change. Why would God change? Why would he change? 
If he didn't do it perfectly the first time, then what do you think uh, would happen the second time? Was there any guarantee he does it right the second time? God doesn't need to change. He's got all things under his control. And the immutability of Jesus Christ, folks, is actually the warp and the woof of the Godhead. You have to have that. And then I also think it's important to note that he's the Alpha and the Omega of Holy Scripture. Consider the first words of of Genesis where it says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God created? Well, who is this God? And the Apostle Paul told us clearly who he is. And speaking of Jesus in the book of Colossians, he says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That is the God of the Scriptures. And these scriptures, all of this is the story of Jesus Christ. Robert Schuller said that classic theology erred by being God-centered rather than man-centered. And do you understand if that's so? It means that Jesus Christ is not the Alpha and Omega of Holy Scripture. Man becomes the center of Scripture. But this book was built on Jesus Christ. This is a book about him, about how he would glorify himself by saving man. And the emphasis there is not on saved man. The emphasis is on the one who saves man. And so what do we have in the Bible but a picture that's filled, a book that's filled with vivid word pictures of Jesus Christ. And what do we learn in Scripture about who he is? Well, we learn that he's the antitype of all the Old Testament worship. He is the sacrifice that's made on the altar. He's the door of the tabernacle. He's the covering of the boards. He's the gold and the wood and the the Ark of the Covenant. It's Jesus Christ who, who is the one who's the light of that golden candlestick. And he's the one that's the bread on the table of showbread. It's Jesus Christ who's the golden pot of manna and the rod of Aaron that budded. That's Christ. He's the vessels of the tabernacle the cups all those vessels all the platters he's the urim and the thummim he's that ephod that was made the breastplate made for the priest he's the linen garments the white linen linen garments that they wore and he is the ark of safety that noah took his family into he's the lamb that we read about in exodus that whose blood was smeared on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses for protection from the death angel He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And the whole Bible is his story. It's how he created, how he visited his people, how he gave them law, how he gave them grace, how he came as a baby, how he lived a perfect life, how he was willing to go to the cross, how he laid in a cold, dark tomb, and how he came out of that tomb and how he ascended into heaven. And then here in the book of Revelation, he's the very same God who's coming back in power and great glory. And he comes with reward for his people. And so from beginning to end, the Bible is his book. It's all centered on him. And that's why I don't want to tear him down and do anything other than to talk about his absolute sovereignty. And I can't do it anyway. I can either acknowledge that it's true or not acknowledge it. It makes no difference He is what he is, or as he would say it, I am that I am. 
And so what a powerful statement that we find here in this 13th verse. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I don't know how you can pass over that verse. W.A. Criswell eloquently wrote, If there is any reference to any high and holy majesty in the Bible, it is of him. If there is any description of a prophetic office or any delineation of a priestly character, its sublimest counterpart is found in him. Is there a prophet? Then all other prophets follow at a humble distance from him. Is there a priest? Then he's the great high priest making atonement for the sins of his people. Is there a king? Then he is king of kings, and of his dominion there is no end. Other empires may fall, but his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Is there a shepherd? Then he's the good and great shepherd of his sheep. Is there a stone? Then he is the chief cornerstone of the building of God. All worship, adoration, and glory belong to him. And did he die? Then his death is an atonement for the sins of the whole world and an occasion for his exaltation above the heaven of heavens. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is truly Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end of all worship and devotion, of all exaltation and glory. And so, folks, this is me speaking to you, as it were, from my kitchen table. And I, and I just say, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Now, I didn't have time to develop other points under this heading tonight, and I hope you'll forgive me for that. But I, I'll leave you with this. It's a verse that stands by itself, and I quote from this hymn, My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence now and we are simply awed at what scripture has to say about you and we think about this invitation that's given as I said in the beginning of the message uh, we just can't understand how that the Bible could end on a note like this how we could come down to the very last things that are said in the word of God and God knowing what our hearts are like knowing what men will do knowing how the world by large will reject him And yet he still, in the very end, issues an invitation for sinners to come to him. What a great God that we serve. We we honor you. We glorify your name. We, We just want to magnify the sovereignty of our dear God and Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we just pray that you'd speak to our hearts tonight as we prepare for this supper. And may we have this ever-present feeling deep down in our souls that we are so grateful and we want to give so much thanks to Jesus Christ for coming into the world to die, to shed his own blood to save us from our sins. May that be the thought of every single person in this room tonight as we have this wonderful opportunity to observe uh, this, this memorial supper. Bless us, Lord, 
Be with us as we sing and as we continue our worship tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.